Father, we thank you for your good blessing upon each of us over this holiday period, over the time where we again uh, remember the birth of Jesus Christ, who came in the world as the light of the world, as Messiah, as the one who would become the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world. We thank you, Lord, for this new year, and we trust that as we move forward through this year, our eyes will be fixed upon you and that you will do in us what you would choose to accomplish. I pray, Father, that we will be clay in the hands of our great eternal potter and that you will mold us and shape us into the people you would have us to be. I ask that 1997 will be a year of great blessing in, in that many, many who are friends and relatives and loved ones of ours will be tra uh, drawn to you and will turn to you. I pray, Father, that this church will experience the outpouring of your Spirit in the sense that many uh, will come to know Christ through the ministry and others will be deepened in their faith and commitment. And Lord, for each one, that our focus will be upon the soon return of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the Word again and for the truth and pray that your Spirit will guide our thoughts and our understanding of your word this day. In Jesus' name, amen. It's interesting, we received a letter from an individual who said that actually, probably, we are already in the 21st century if you actually measure it from the real time that Christ was born because he was born at least four years before the year zero or one, there's no year zero and probably five or six. So this is probably already 2001 or two, something like that. So I guess we don't need to get too excited about, you know, all, all of that. But I think we are far nearer the return of our Lord, not only in the sense that it's 2,000 years since Christ uh, was born, but in the signs of the times and in many other ways. I, I think we can believe that our Lord's return is not too distant. I'd like to, uh, this morning, just give a few words of uh, rebuilding where we ended up um, three weeks ago now. We have followed the life of Moses from his birth all the way through the Mount Sinai experience where he has received the Decalogue for the second time on the top of the mountain. And he is in the process now as we look at the final chapters of Exodus and, and look at kind of a summary of the uh, book of Leviticus that uh, God is using him to actually construct the tabernacle and its precincts to build these implements that you see pictured before you on these diagrams and then to institute the ceremonial laws. And uh, these ceremonial laws, for the most part, do not apply to us today, but their, their importance is in the symbolism, in, in the preparation for the coming of Messiah. As Paul tells us in Galatians, all of what we read in the Old Testament, the ceremonial laws, uh, the dietary laws, and all the rest of it, were to serve as a tutor, as a schoolmaster, uh, teaching the people about their need for Messiah and about the need for the one who would come as revealed in Isaiah 53 as the suffering servant who would die and then who would rise again for the uh, perpetual satisfaction 
of the atonement sacrifice. And we'll touch upon a little of that as we go along here. In chapters 35 through chapter 40 of the book of Exodus, the final chapters of the book, we find the actual description there of the building of the tabernacle and of its dedication. Now, if you go back in the book of Exodus to chapters 21, 25 through 31, you find all of this said before. Only before it was the instruction of how to do it, and then in chapters 35 through 40 primarily, it's the doing of it. And so you find constant repetition between those two sets of uh, chapters. And so we're not going to go through the details of uh, those chapters because we've already talked about most of the details before. But I would, as I noted last time on the 15th of December, which is the last time we had class, I would look, like for us to look at uh, chapter 35, beginning at verse 20. Exodus 35, 20 reading through verse 29. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel departed from Moses' presence. And everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him came and brought the Lord's contribution for the work of the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. Then all whose hearts moved them, both men and women, came and brought brooches and earrings and signet rings, and bracelets, all articles of gold. So did every man who presented an offering of gold to the Lord, and every man who had in his possession blue and purple and scarlet material, and fine linen, and goat's hair, and ram's skins dyed red, and porpoise skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver and bronze brought the Lord's contribution. And every man who had in his possession acacia wood for any work of, of the service brought it. And all the skilled women spun with their hands and brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet material and fine linen. And all the women whose heart stirred with a skill spun goat's hair. And the rulers brought the onyx stones and the stones for the setting for the ephod and for the breast piece and the spice and the oil for the light, and for the anoint, anointing oil, and the fragrant incense. The Israelites, all the men and women, whose heart moved them to bring material for all the work which the Lord had commanded through Moses to be done, brought a free will offering to the Lord. I think that this is a really important passage in helping us to understand that this was the Lord's work, but it was done by His people. The Lord could have dropped the tabernacle out of heaven. I mean, the Lord created the universe. Just, whoosh, he Lord spoke and the universe came into being. The Lord could have made a tabernacle and just plopped it down there. But he didn't. He worked through his people to establish this center of worship for them as his people. And, and first we discover here that the materials which were to be used were provided by the people themselves. Now, you know, where, where did they get these materials? Well, obviously they got them in Egypt. Uh, they brought them with them from Egypt. They were part of what they had gained at the last minute when they asked their neighbors for, for these things. And, and they were provided. The Egyptians willingly gave them whatever they wanted just to get them out of the land because of the great disasters that had fallen upon the nation of Egypt as a result of the ten plagues. 
And so they carried these uh, gold and silver objects. Now, we have to recognize they didn't carry ingots of gold, probably, or ingots of silver. It was all in the form of ornaments and, and brooches and rings, as, as we read about here. So it was uh, jewelry, and this form was that which the gold was found. And we might think, well, you know, it takes an awful lot of rings and brooches to make much gold. Well, we're talking about a lot of people here. <laughs> and we're talking about at least two million of them. And amongst two million people who, who had earrings of gold and brooches and signet rings and, and anklets and bracelets and all the rest of it, uh, made, up, made for a lot of gold and silver. And so they, they brought this material with them from, from Egypt. And, and what we discover here is that they willingly gave of these items to the Lord. It was a free will offering in every sense of the word. There was no compulsion here. Moses didn't get up and say, now if you guys don't give, we'll not get this tabernacle built and who knows how long it's going to take and all this thing. He, he just said, this is what we're going to do. And the people were moved because God put it in their hearts to do it. It says God stirred their hearts to give. And they brought it out of joy, not out of compulsion. And of course, that's what we're told in the New Testament, that God loves, and of course, you've heard it so many times translated, the actual Greek there, I understand, says, a hilarious giver. I don't know how many of us just laugh ourselves silly as we drop our money into the offering plate, but you know, it's the idea that we're, we're doing it because we really want to do it, not because we're just under some kind of an obligation, you know, if I don't do it, Lord won't, you know, I'll lose my job next week or something else. And then we also discover that they worked willingly. Those who could spun, could spin, spun. Those who could spun, spin. <laughs> you know, whatever. They, they, they wove the material. Those who could work with gold and silver did it. Those who could work with wood did it. They, they willingly did it. And, and we're told that God stirred their hearts to do it, and then he gave them the skill to do it excellently. I think this is really important. God wants us to do his work excellently. Not, not every one of us is absolutely skilled in everything that we do. But if we put our heart into it and we submit ourselves unto God and he works through us, then it will be done right. And as, as I highlighted at the very end of class last time, I think these objects, and, and you have you know, a picture here of what is thought that many of them look like. I, I think these objects were, were actually works of art. I, I think if we had seen these at uh, first hand, we would have said, well, it looks like it was made in, in the crucibles of heaven and dropped down. I, I think it was all full of ding marks, you know, and <coughs> one horn was taller than the other horn. I, I think that it was made in an excellent manner because God enabled them to do it. All you have to do is go to one of the great museums of the world and look at some of the works of art that come from the ancient world. I mean, pagan works of art. And some of this stuff is absolutely exquisite. You look at it and you say, how can a man do this or a woman do this? I couldn't, you know. I try to make something out of my, with my hands and, you know, my goodness, forget it. But you, you look at these things that have been ma made and, and they're just, they're beautiful. You know, they're perfectly proportioned. They, they look like they've been burnished with modern tools, you know. So I, I can just believe that uh, these were beautiful, beautiful furnishings. And the whole thing that was put together was a glorious sight to behold. In the 38th chapter of Exodus, 
In verse 24 through verse 26, we get a little idea of how much gold and silver were used here. It says in Exodus 38:24, all the gold that was used for the work in all the work of the sanctuary, even the gold of the wave offering was 29 talents and 730 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. And the silver of those of the congregation who were numbered was 100 talents and 1,775 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. And a becca a head, that is, a half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, for each one who passed over to those who were numbered from 20 years old and upward for 603,550 men. Every time a man became 20 years of age, he was to give a becca to the sanctuary per year as a, an endowment, if you will, for the sanctuary. And uh, so there were 603,500 men who were of the age that they would contribute this half a shekel per year to the, to the sanctuary. So what are we talking about here? Well, if you were to translate these terms of 29 talents plus 730 shekels of gold and then 100 talents of silver and so forth into modern terminology, we're talking about approximately $10 million worth of gold and about a half a million dollars worth of silver was contributed by these motley Bedouins out in the desert. You know. That's how much gold they acquired from, from the uh, Egyptians, and, and probably even more than that. They, they may not have given every little bit they had. They gave what was needed to, to make the works of the sanctuary. And, and so we're talking about a huge sum of money here you know, from this, this group of people that was, was given here to the manufacture of these implements. Now, if we look at these two papers here just for a moment, because as we move to the 40th chapter of the book of Exodus, we're going to be looking at the actual assembly of the tabernacle uh, with all of its implements here. In the page which is called the tabernacle, and you, some of you may remember I brought that model that uh, Dr. Walmark supplied uh, from a student who had made it many years ago at the college. And we looked at that briefly, and, and this is, of course, a small rendition of that. And, and you will notice that the tabernacle was, in effect, a tent that was built towards the rear of the tabernacle enclosure. And in front of, of it were the laver where the priests were to wash themselves ceremonially, literally uh, and ceremonially, before they went about doing the functions of the priesthood. And then, of course, the altar of sacrifice was further out. Uh, that's the great bronze altar, which is shown to you in the lower right-hand corner of, of this other page here. The bronze altar upon which the sacrifices were actually made. The fire was lit below, and then the flames came up through the grating to consume the sacrifice, the goat, the lamb, uh, whatever was placed on there. And that was done in front of the tabernacle itself. Uh, within the tabernacle, of course, only the priests could go. And, and the priests would go inside the tabernacle, the outer court of the tabernacle, which is the front half of that tent enclosure there. And in that place were these other three items down here. The candelabra or the menorah, the uh, table of the showbread, and the golden ark altar of incense. These three features 
were in that outer court of the, uh, the holy place, they called it, as opposed to the Holy of Holies, which was behind the second veil. And there's a little cutaway, as you see here. This was the outer veil, and this one was the inner veil. The inner veil separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is simply shown to you in greater detail. It was not that large relative to the other in, um, furnishings down here. It was actually a very, very small chest, as we have talked about before. You know, two, two feet by three feet. It was a very, very small object altogether. And on top, this is an attempt to render what the uh, cherubim looked like. Personally, I believe the cherubim were made in such a way, it, it seems to indicate that the, that the uh, wings actually came almost together directly above the mercy seat, which this doesn't quite show. But anyway, it's this basic idea that you see here of the uh, cherubim on the two ends of the mercy seat. So this is the structure that the Israelites have been in the process now of manufacturing over a period of about half a year. And they are going to be establishing this now and actually putting it together as we read the 40th chapter of the book of Exodus here. I'd like to read beginning at verse 17. Now it came about in the first month of the second year on the first day of the month that the tabernacle was erected. And Moses erected the tabernacle and laid its sockets and set up its boards and inserted its bars and erected its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent on top of it, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he took the testimony and put it into the ark. The testimony, of course, is the Decalogue, the, the Ten Commandments carved in stone that he received on the mountain. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and attached the poles to the ark and put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set, it, and set up a veil for the screen and screened off the ark of the testimony just as the Lord had commanded Moses. That is, of course, the inner screen, the second veil that separated the holy of holies from the holy place. And that is the veil which in the tabernacle that is in the temple of Herod, uh, which was torn in half from top to bottom at the time that Christ died on the cross. Verse 23, And he set the arrangement of bread in order on it before the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded him. I, I guess I forgot 22. And he put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil, and then he set the arrangement of bread in order on it before the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle. And he lighted the lamps before the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he placed the golden altar in the tent of meeting in front of the veil. And he burned fragrant incense on it, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he set up the veil for the doorway of the tabernacle. And he set the altar of burnt offering before the doorway of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And he offered on it the burnt offering and the meal offering, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he placed the laver between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. And from it Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they entered the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. 
And he erected the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the veil for the gateway of the court. Thus Moses finished the work. We're told in this passage that the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the second year of the Exodus. So they have now completed an entire year from the time they began the Exodus, and now on the first day of that second year, they actually are setting up the tabernacle and the tabernacle courtyard. They had been there at Mount Sinai for approximately nine months. Six of those nine months they have spent doing the spinning and the weaving and the assembling and the molding and the making of all these implements that God had directed Moses from the top of Sinai. And the tabernacle has now been constructed and it's ready for assembly and the assembly took place here. Now, Walter Kaiser Jr. in his commentary on Exodus points out something I thought was kind of interesting and you probably picked it up as I read through this passage. That verses 18 through 33 uh, of this passage contain seven subsections. And each of these subsections concludes with the formula, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And so uh, let me just summarize it. In verses 18 and 19 we read, Moses erected the tabernacle just as the Lord had commanded Moses. In verses 20 and 21, he took the testimony and put it into the ark, and he brought the ark into the tabernacle, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verses 22 and 23, he put the table in the tent of meeting, and he set the arrangement of bread on it. How? Just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And verses 24 to 25, he placed the lampstand and he lighted it, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verses 26 and 27, he placed the golden altar, he burned incense on it, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And then in verses 28 and 29, he set up the veil for the doorway, he set up the altar of burnt offering, and offered on it the burnt offering, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And then finally, <clears throat> in verses 30 to 32, he placed the laver, he put water in it, and they washed, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. This is what the Lord is looking for. People who will do just as he has commanded. Not arguing, not bickering, not trying to find a way out, not trying to soft soap God or, you know, stiff arm him or anything else, but to do just as he has commanded. Moses had a lot of reasons not to. Two million of them out there. And yet he has led them through this six-month process of constructing this whole thing and, and seeing the, the amount of goat hair, for example, coming together and being put, uh, sewn together in, into the great covering for the uh, tabernacle and, and the so-called porpoise skin or dugong skin and ram skin and, and all the other parts that were, had to be assembled and put together. I mean, who had a huge sheet of ram skin, let's say, to start with? Probably nobody. But some people may have had a few. And so you bring them all, and they had to be all sewn together into this, this large tent covering. Even though the tabernacle was not a very large structure, it takes a lot of goat skins, you know, to cover a, a structure even as small as that structure was. And so when it comes to the final assembly, Moses meticulously followed the blueprint. 
and did it exactly as the Lord had commanded Moses. But it wasn't like, oh, well, we ran out of boards. We don't quite have enough, so we'll just kind of adjust it a little here. No, there were exactly the number of boards, exactly the number of sockets uh, for the boards to be placed in. Uh, the rods that, that ran through the building to stiffen it all had to be gold-plated from one end of the rod to the other end of the rod, not halfway or partway. Uh, the whole thing was done exactly as God had commanded because this wasn't just a work being accomplished for some hard-headed businessman. This was being done for the sovereign Lord of the universe. And I, you know, it, it, you just can hardly imagine the joy that went through the hearts of these people as this thing was being erected. As they saw it go up and as they participated, had participated in the manufacture of the implements and then watched them being put into place. It must have been a very, very exciting time. And in verse 33, we read that Moses hung the curtain wall. That's this, this outer perimeter curtain. We've, we've talked about all the details of this before, but just to refresh your mind, this, this outer perimeter of curtains with pillars placed about every seven and a half feet or so, and curtains slung in between uh, to completely delimit the uh, tabernacle grounds. And then the main entrance curtain down here. So there are three important curtains altogether. The main entrance curtain into the precinct, the curtain that allowed entry into the holy, of, holy, the holy place, and then, of course, the second veil, which allowed entrance into the Holy of Holies, through which, of course, no one passed except the high priest once a year. And we'll be talking about that as we look at the book of Leviticus briefly. Let's read the last verses of chapter 40, beginning at verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. We're not told how long it took them to set it up, but I don't think it took them very long because we're talking about a lot of people here. Even if we only talked about the Levites, uh, we have over 20,000 of them. And so you have that many busy people here stringing this, each person with his own job to do. You know, probably one person per job. You know, you guys are responsible for the 12th <laughs> column along this outer perimeter here. You guys put it up and you run the stringers out there and you attach the curtain and that's your job, you know. This whole thing could easily be set up in one day. Well, it had to be, because it was a portable temple. They were to be able to take it down and pack it up and take it off and set it back up. And they wouldn't just park it someplace and say, oh, well, when we get around to it, we'll set it back up again. When they set up camp, they were to set up the tabernacle. And so this had to be something that could be quickly erected and quickly taken apart. And so, of course, this was their first shot at it. And the first shot always a little bit slower, and they probably were very reverent about it. But uh, I believe the whole thing was put in place 
in one day. Well, once they had it set up, and once all the consecrations had been performed, everything had to be consecrated, dedicated, cleansed as it were, to be made ready for the service of the Lord. Then we're told that Yahweh himself descended upon the tabernacle in that cloud in which he had descended on Mount Sinai. That cloud that they had witnessed on top of the mountain, that cloud they had been afraid of for months on end, because it thundered and it lightninged and it roared and rumbled. That cloud now was on the tabernacle. Sinai was probably clear. <laughs> the visible glory of God so filled that structure that not even Moses dared to enter the tabernacle. He stood back in holy awe and witnessed the visible glory of God in that building. I think it's important for us to always remember that the tabernacle was God's chosen touchstone. There was nothing about the tabernacle that made it the dwelling place of God. It was God's point of contact at that moment with his people. And he would manifest his glory in that building because he so chose to do it. It does not mean that he was not elsewhere in his universe because, as we know, God is omnipresent. If not all the people, certainly Moses understood that this building was not where God lived. It's interesting because this is an important concept because amongst the pagans, it's, it's, it's very much believed that their gods lived in these structures that they had built. And this statue is the god we're worshiping. This is Dagon or Chemosh or Baal or Ashtra or whatever it is. This is the god or the goddess. And, and the goddess is resident in this building. You know, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, they cried in Acts. And, and this huge, ugly statue of, of Diana stood in the temple there at Ephesus, and they believed this was her home, and that's where she was resident. Well, we know that when Solomon prayed the great dedicatory prayer for the temple, many, many saints were made. Well, God, as we read in this passage, will manifest his glory there for the next 39 years in a cloud that would sit on the tabernacle by day and a fiery pillar at night. So you could see it whether it was day or night. <clears throat> so on a dark night you didn't have any problem looking out. Oh, I wonder if the cloud is still there. I can't see it. You could see it. Roar, roar, you know, as it sat there on top of the tabernacle. And of course, when the cloud moved off of the tabernacle, they knew God was saying, okay guys, pack it up. We're moving. And wherever the cloud went, they followed. Isn't that neat? Do you like to have a cloud to follow every day? Which way is the Lord leading today? Well, there he is. Let's go that way. Well, we do, really. You know? We have this book, and we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And that's one of the important reasons that the Scripture tells us that we are to keep a close accounts with God, keep our lives clean before him so that we can hear his Spirit when he's leading us here and leading us there. If we're all filled up with the clutter of this world and we've been disobedient, I mean, we're not hearing his voice and we're going to blunder into some blank wall or drop off a bluff someplace, you know, because we are not watching the cloud where it's moving. 
but they had this cloud that was visible for them to, to lead them as they traveled through the wilderness for the next 39 years. Now, it was not God's primary intent that they have to follow this thing for 39 years. Two was about what his basic plan was, but as we are going to be discovering as we search further, that uh, they will get to the edge of the promised land and they won't follow into the promised land. Because in spite of all that God has done for all the, this two-year period, they'll say, we just can't conquer this land because the walls are too high and the people are too big. So that adds another 38 years of following the cloud around, you know, in the wilderness when they didn't really need to do that. What's important to note, of course, is that this tabernacle is going to be around for quite a while. This tabernacle will not be replaced by a temple until the days of Solomon. And, of course, in the process of the years between the time it is erected here in the 40th chapter of Exodus and, and the time that, as you read in the, um, the Kings, that Solomon erects the great temple, there, there'll be a period of time in which the tabernacle will actually even fall into disuse and, and may, at least in part, be lost. And uh, the ark, as we know, will not even be in it all of the time. There'll be time when it's out where it never was supposed to be. And tragedy would come upon Israel as a result. You know, if you decide to modify what God has instructed us to do, don't plan on, on God... Uh, showing you the way, because God is pretty insistent upon obedience, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, or you, or me, is what he wants. The, the next book of the Pentateuch is, as you see there, Leviticus, which means the book of the Levites. And it, it is not a historical book in the sense that as you go through it, you continue from this point on. You do not. It's kind of an insert. It just kind of drops into the middle of the historical narrative here. And it, it gives us the instructions that Moses was given by God on Sinai to give to Israel. Now, whether Moses wrote all those instructions down, as I implied before when he was on top of Mount Sinai that second time, th that is the second time when he was receiving the Decalogue, receiving the Decalogue for a second time, whether that time was partly spent in him writing on to parchment, uh, these instructions that we have here, not, I, I don't know. But at some point, he now delivers these instructions, and they come very, very much right on the heels of the building of this tabernacle, because now we got it built. How do we use it? What do we do? Now, who's supposed to officiate, and how do they do it? Well, that's where Leviticus comes in. Leviticus tells us how this is to be worked out. It gives the ceremonial aspects of the law. And the first several chapters, for example, uh, the Burke of the book of Leviticus, uh, deal with the various offerings that the Israelites were to make, the various offerings they were to make. Now, as you study this, you think, oh, sure glad I live now. <laughs> because it seems like there was something you had to be doing all the time, or nearly all the time, and you kind of had to keep the calendar in your head and know what's coming up next, it seems like. 
we're a little sloppy about that. Um, most of us, if you've been raised in the Protestant tradition, tend to deviate from the liturgical calendar, the calendar that the church has developed over 2,000 years of history. And we tend to kind of be sloppy about uh, application of it. And I'm not saying that whether that's good or bad. It uh, just depends on how much we like form and, and ritual and how much we rather be kind of free floating about the whole thing. But for the Israelites, they didn't have a choice. They were to follow exactly the formula that God laid out here. The, the offerings, for example, that are dealt with in the first few chapters deal with uh, things like Thanksgiving offering, the peace offering, the sin offering. These are the main ones that are described here. And in Leviticus chapter 4, we find that separate offerings were to be made for the national sins of Israel, for the sins of the leaders, and then for the sins of the people. Now, could you imagine if we were to translate that to our country today, how long it would take? Verse 35 of Leviticus 4 says, Then he shall remove all its fat, just as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest shall offer them up in smoke on the altar, on the offerings by fire to the Lord. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin which he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. This is a verse which tells us of the efficacy of these sacrifices and offerings. They weren't just a ritual that was to be performed in order to keep an angry God happy. They had a purpose. They had a purpose of changing the heart of the person who participated in the sacrifice. The sacrifice actually brought forgiveness of sin because of the repentant, humble heart which offered this sacrifice as a symbol. Now, they didn't know at that time what the symbol was, but we, from the New Testament perspective, of course, can look back upon it and see that, of course, it was the symbol of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. It was, it's very, very important that although this passage, this verse here, does not say, and if he is repentant, he shall be forgiven. But there are many verses in the Old Testament which indicate to us that just performing the ritual did not bring forgiveness. There had to be a repentant heart that went along with the sacrifice. So if you perform the sacrifice, you had to, in your heart, be humble before God and seriously asking his forgiveness for sin. That constant acknowledgement that sin was in the heart. Now, this, the, 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 um, the effectiveness of the sacrifice, of course, was in the symbol of the later death of Christ. The sacrifice, the frequent sacrifice, reminded the people of the fact that their sins were many, their sins were constant, and of the fact that in the fact that they had to actually put their hand on the animal that was to be sacrificed. I mean, you couldn't just say, okay, here's the lamb, you kill it, I'm not going to watch. No, you had to put your hand on the sacrifice and participate in the death of that animal. Why? Because it reminded them of the great price of sin. 
Sin is a horrible thing. God doesn't just say, oh, well, you know, you blew it again, no big deal. <laughs> it is a big deal. And, and God wanted the people to be aware of that, constantly aware of their need for cleansing. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We use that passage in 1 John 1, 9. And that is the same concept, old or new. If we confess our sin, when we confess our sin, keep doing it is the idea there in 1 John. And so it is here in this whole process. Well, let me, I'll take the time, it'll take an extra minute here, but <clears throat> let me end uh, by just reading that passage in Hebrews chapter 10, which ties it together, old and new coming together, the symbolism of the sacrifices, the reality of the sacrifice in Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, first verse, for the law, since it has only a shadow, a symbol of the good things to come, and not the very form of things can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats <clears throat> to take away sin. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the roll of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast not desired, nor hast thou taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do thy will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. And of course, the he is Christ. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected, now that is an eternal standing, as we are born again into the family of God, we have become perfect in our eternal standing. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, but we in this life are in the process of being purified, being made holy. There is a progressive nature to it. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and upon their mind I will write them. Then he says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. All of this you read in Leviticus 
is the symbol, the shadow of the reality that would be performed in the death of Christ. <clears throat> well, next week, uh, we'll actually proceed right on through Exodus, just touching little, I mean, Leviticus touching uh, points here and there. Our detailed study will pick up again with numbers because that's when the narrative uh, begins again, ending with Exodus and starting on there. <clears throat>